You're listening to Death of the Reader here on 2SER. This is Flex and Herds for your Murder Mystery World Tour. It is a pleasure to be with you as we delve into our next novel, Herds Has Challenged Me to Solve The Sign of the Four by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, a Sherlock Holmes book in the flesh. Yeah. We're finally tackling the classic, I would say the original detective, the only one that really matters, let's be real here. Mr. Sherlock Holmes, known to never get anything wrong, a man of logic and reason, and lots of hard drugs. <laughs> yes, we are covering chapters one to five today on the show. And as you've said there, Herds, this book starts out just getting straight into Sherlock's drug abuse. Yeah. A quality, well-put-together character. <laughs> it's great. No, look, here's the thing. I love it. I love that we just get right into it. Um, the Sign of the Four is only the second Sherlock Holmes novel after a study in Scarlet. Mm. Uh, and we can already see, I've, I've, I've glanced through a study in Scarlet myself, we can already see that uh, Arthur Conan Doyle is like, he's eager to delve into the 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 kind of bad side of Sherlock Holmes. Mm. The fact that he is addicted um, and it's not just to hard drugs, but to like case solving. Uh, one of the, my favorite parts of this novel that we'll see, especially as we as we go forward, is that like he always just wants to be thinking and have his mind stimulated. Yeah. And if it's not by a good puzzle, it's by the needle. It's great. Yeah, it's kind of like they are his two addictions and he can only yeah. really, you know, live with one or the other. I believe that this was this was either the second or the third actual piece of Sherlock Holmes literature published because there were also short stories alongside, but it was definitely like among the first. But as you actually look at the, you know, at the way that the story is laid out, there's a lot of mentions of past cases that have happened off screen and references to things that they've done. And I think that they're quite tastefully thrown in to establish that there is more of a relationship in there than we actually get to see necessarily on screen without it making it feel like you've missed out on anything. Yeah. I mean, they mostly serve to uh, show us, the audience, the credibility of Sherlock as a character Mm -hmm. because he does come on very strong, you know, as like, uh, like, I mean, we we see it in the very first chapter where Watson comes in with dirt on his shoe and he says, ah, I see, Watson, you've been sending a letter. I, and he's like, how could you tell her by this dirt on my shoe? He's like, well, he taps his he taps his nose. He's let me explain it to you mm-hmm. in several very long and detailed paragraphs why dirt equals you sent a letter. And it's insane. This entire novel, watching Sherlock go from, you know, clue to clue, deriving the most insane uh, and yet completely accurate uh, outcomes it's it's a good thing we we have established him, you know, as somebody who has experience and education in the matter. Otherwise, I wouldn't believe it. I wouldn't believe this was real. Yeah, and I think a lot of this novel actually does spend far more time working on that characterization than perhaps your standard mystery. We spend so much time looking at the internal workings of John Watson's head and his biases for and against the way that Sherlock operates, and particularly when we get to dealing uh, with Mary Morstan, the person who presents the case to Sherlock at the beginning of the novel, uh, there is an interesting back and forth about the relationship that the detective should have their client. And then as the scenes go on, there are these kind of side notices to how later Mary said this to Watson. And you're like, hold on a minute. Why is why is he discussing the contents of this book with Mary after the case? And I should tell, tell you before I get in that this is uh, Mary Watson later on in the Sherlock franchise. Um, 
you know, the, obviously that kind of is probably going to come around towards the end of the book and maybe could be considered a spoiler, but I think that it is enough a part of the Sherlock canon as a whole uh, that I'm willing to throw that up front here. And also, so you know that my uh, my knowledge coming into this book. Well, that's going to be one of the kind of challenges, I think, because this was written, you know, before the golden age of detective fiction, and it is a classic. But that also means that we are very, very familiar with Sherlock Holmes as a character. Mm. Um, I I think, uh, you know, I talk about this a lot, but the Robert Downey Jr. representation of the character is a little bit over the top, yes. more like action hero. Um, but he also has the same vices of drugs and always needing to be moving and doing things. Um, I think that both movies open up with him doing experiments on the, the house dog, actually, if I recall correctly. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty interesting to see where that, that character kind of, kind of originated because it's gone through so many different iterations. Um, and yeah, just seeing Sherlock go from this kind of, you know, he's, he's mostly a mouthpiece in this story. We don't really see him do too much, um, but watching him kind of evolve through the ages and then he's stuck around because there's something very, very profound and very kind of human about him. Yeah. And I think if you even just look at the setup of the mystery, there is no way that this fits into the world of golden age mysteries as we know them conventionally. Oh Knox and Van Dyne are just out the window from the absolute get go. I mean, if you look at the cast of characters, we basically have five people who have appeared on screen, one of them dead. Mm-hmm three of them clearly completely innocent, one of them probably going to be framed, and that's the whole cast, which means that effectively our culprit hasn't even been introduced yet, and that is just out the gate a a sin against the rules of Father Knox. It's quite possible, although I will remind you that we have had uh, we have had twins introduced into the story, so maybe there's some shenanigans going along there, but we'll we'll talk more about that in the in the third part of the story. Are um, they twins? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sholto and, uh, well, not Sholto. Sholto and Sholto. Sholto and Sholto, <laughs> indeed. Uh, Thaddeus and Bartholomew are twin brothers, which I'm surprised that you've neglected. Is that not going to factor into your solution, I wonder? I was uh, I was not uh, entirely certain about the fact that they were twins, but I'm not entirely convinced that that makes a huge difference uh, considering that if you know we found one of their corpses already, so thus the twin swapping is at worst going to be that we are speaking with Bartholomew, which on a functional level, I don't think changes the case that much. Uh, well, perhaps we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, but it is it is interesting that detail is kind of lost in there. Um, yeah, we've presented with quite a lot of kind of information. The actual case that we're dealing with is a treasure, mm-hmm. a, a treasure case that has gone missing. Um, and the dear Bartholomew, who may or may not be Bartholomew, um, has been killed uh, in, in the process. Um, and yeah, it seems like the entire kind of motivator behind the crime is going to be money, uh, which is an interesting one. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. You know, obviously the Mm. pretense of it is that this is about the treasure case, which uh, Captain Morton and uh, and the senior Sholto brought back from the Afghan conflict, which ties back into John Watson's character as a former army doctor. Mm. Um, But I, I don't even necessarily think that the crux of the story is going to rely on the treasure case. Obviously, that's what it is about and that's what the motivation is going to be. But I get the impression that it is more going to be about the actions of Senior Sholto and Morstan uh, in the past that are going to hinge on why things are going the way they are. 
Perhaps because I believe the uh, the story that we're told um, by by the surviving twin brother um, is a little bit confusing. But there's there's senior Sholto, and then there's the two junior Sholtos, one of which is deceased. Um, but the the remaining junior Sholto, uh, Thaddeus, has told us that uh, his father actually killed uh, Captain uh, Morton, uh, or or maybe accidentally killed him. Um, in a in a heated discussion over the treasure, um, and it definitely seems to be a part of the novel. And I, I quite like this that the treasure itself is bringing misfortune through its its greed and the like avarice that it kind of causes. Um, but that in sort of penitence, perhaps uh, the Sholto uh, family has been sending pearls to uh, to Mary, yes, um, who is of course the daughter of of Morton. Um, and that's kind of why why she's been giving these these pearls from this treasure. Yeah, the the implication here is that uh, Major Senior uh, Sholto was basically keeping the money that was meant to be shared between Captain Morstan and his daughter yes. uh, entirely for himself, and that whichever of his uh, his twin sons is the one actually running the operation here um, is you know falling to the same avarice that his father did. Yeah, for sure, for sure. You could make the case, I think, that uh, the surviving the surviving Sholto, uh, told to us to be Thaddeus, has killed his brother to keep the funds for himself is, is a plausible story, but considering that he asked Morstan to come with accomplices to arrange this transaction, I don't think that that holds much weight because getting other people involved when there has already been a secret disposing of corpses in the story seems rather counterintuitive if it is implied that the family has the capacity to do so. Perhaps, perhaps. I think the main point here that you should look at is not that this crime is particularly intricate or well put together or well puzzled out. So I think that the far more interesting thing to look at is to look at comparing John Watson with the other characters who have been involved in the war, look at comparing, you know, Sherlock's vices and how he approaches the case, and look at the the very, I guess, old-fashioned British-style humor of the proud leading individual coming in, getting everything right, and then waltzing out of the scene like nothing happened. Because that is absolutely the implication of Sherlock Holmes. That is his grand, powerful ability, and it has been put on display over and over and over again. There are so many quips about the ways that people act, so many quips about how this is obviously how things happened and how it is, you know, more than simple Watson. And I think it's more about the experience of reading and going along for that journey than it is our traditional puzzle-solving element, because I genuinely do not think, and we'll talk about this in the final part of the show, that we have a fair play mystery in the slightest. Uh, you know, fair play is a, is a strong term to be used in this sort of mystery, but I definitely agree we are reading this uh, for the fun of it, so to speak. Mm. We're reading this as a piece of history more than we are as a modern puzzle to be solved. Um, that said, I will, I will agree with you. Sherlock Holmes himself as a character, his ability to control a room um, and not necessarily through... You know, we've talked about Van Dyne on the show before, mm. and not necessarily through complicated psychological manipulations. He simply comes in, states the truth, which throws everyone off their guard, and from there he's able to pursue, um, you know, his job of being an amateur detective, as it were. He is an admirable character for that reason, because he isn't perfect. Um, and his cocaine addiction, his you know his his drugs that he that he has to take 
to satisfy his own mind um, are also not played off as just, you know, like he's, you know, he's a rich guy. So they all did drugs back then. You know, it's not the the vibe that we're getting from him. Um, Watson calls him out on it in the very first scene as being something that's very harmful. Uh, and when Sherlock Holmes, he says, oh, why don't you come try some of these, some of these drugs with me? Watson says, you know, I don't know that that's such a good idea, Holmes. It feels like, wouldn't that, wouldn't that, you know, cause harm to your detective mind more than, more than anything else, you know? And I, I don't know. I, I love the flawed character we're presented with here, despite being so powerful. Yeah. I think one of the, one of the famous parts of Sherlock Holmes canon is that one of the stories I have read, the study in Scarlet is that Watson breaks down the abilities of Sherlock Holmes. And I think that when you look at how those abilities are laid out, you can kind of see the counterpoints between the two characters where perhaps whilst Sherlock might be very aware of who's in charge of what country, he has no interest in politics, whereas Watson is you know, more involved in it. And while Sherlock has only rudimentary understanding of how the body works, Watson is a doctor and they are not necessarily entirely opposites, but very complementary characters. And I think that that particularly the introduction of this story goes to show that where they're having this debate between a man of science who understands how the body works and then this really just gung-ho detective who's like, ah, it's fine, bit of cocaine never did anybody harm. What's the fun thing about Sherlock that he can get so much right and yet be so wrong about a little thing like cocaine? Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's terrible. But no, I mean- I, I find it very interesting that you've jumped on this the idea of of um, sorry of Watson being like a man of science, which he is. He's a doctor, but I always think of him of him as the more human, at least in the way that he thinks. Maybe not in the way that he acts. Um, perhaps Sherlock is more human for being such a flawed, you know, neurotic, addicted, sort of compulsive character. <laughs> Well, yeah, I think that one of the interesting things looking at their character, and this we can definitely cover over the coming weeks on this novel, we will. but is that the things that Sherlock says are huge leaps, but his ability is not in that he makes those leaps, it's that he makes the right ones. Sure. You know, if you were to put, put Dr. Watson in front of a bunch of piles of dirt and say that these were taken from a man's trouser legs, where have they been? He could take a bunch of guesses and you know, maybe some of them would be right. The ability that Sherlock has canonically that makes him so special is that he has such a great observational skill that he can tie those two together. And I think that the difference between their kind of neuroticism and intelligence is not necessarily that uh, they're actually hugely different characters. It's just that Watson has a much more laid back approach to his reason. He's a man of science. He uses the scientific method. He's often thinking to himself, you know, how do these pieces of the puzzle fit together? But he doesn't ever make those huge leaps because those observations tend to come from Sherlock, you know? Sure. Watson has a fantastic place in this duo of solving things because he does have that laid back approach. If he was always making the same huge leaps as Sherlock, you know, obviously then you collapse the duo and it becomes pointless, but also that in all of the best buddy cop stories in all of the best duos, there is a dichotomy that makes them complementary, As I said earlier, and particularly when we look at a story like this where Watson basically has a love interest while Sherlock's just ignoring it along the way, I would hope that towards the tail end of the book that love interest will, to some extent, come back around and allow us to resolve a complication of this plot, be it about the emotions that led to the crime, be it about, you know, 
through uh, his relationship with Mary uncovering what actually happened. You know, I don't really know, but I think that that is kind of why these pairings work the best and why I think this story will be a good example of it. Well, I mean, you pretty much hit the nail on the head. Like, this is why I wanted to to do this story. Um, out of all the Sherlock Holmes canon, this is uh, probably, the I think, the first short story that really had a strong focus on, on Watson. Um, and I find, as usual, I find that in Murder Mysteries, the interactions between the, the detective and the Watson to be the most interesting, you know? It's all very fascinating to watch the detective you know, walk up to the cob and say, you've done it and let me tell you why. And they say, oh, no, it wasn't me. And they're trying to explain their way out of it, whatever. Like the antagonist relationship with the protagonist is always very interesting. But for this dedicated support character of the Watson being such a staple of the murder mystery genre, mm. uh, I find it I find it such a fascinating role to fill and trying to, to write and to play it perfectly is something that I think Watson does incredibly well yeah and i mean the fact that the terminology has become the watson exactly is very indicative of how successful and i guess also how early he was to that character archetype the curious thing to me is that i don't necessarily see watson as the archetypal watson because typically the watson is you know an underling that more or less serves a purpose where they are the counterpoint they are the foil but they they don't really have much functional use uh, other than just being the audience's in point. Interesting. Whereas I think that, you know, some of the more interesting Watson-type characters like Archie Goodwin from the Nero mm-hmm. Wolf series actually get out there and do things. And I'm hoping that we we don't see Watson basically relegated to the Watson of uh, of Knox's rules, which is to say that he is dumber than <laughs> slightly dumber than the average reader. Yeah, yeah, I definitely am hoping to see. Uh, I'm hoping that you'll enjoy what Watson gets up to, especially as he pursues his future wife. Um, mm. Obviously, being the emotional kind of driver of this story, uh, I'm hoping that you enjoy the spotlight that he gets in this tale. Fantastic. Well, Herds. Let's take a quick break and then we can come back later on and talk about the actual mystery going through and maybe I can even solve it. Hopefully. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing The Sign of Four by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the second Sherlock Holmes novel, and we will be back in just a second. This is Death of the Reader. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing The Sign of Four by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapters one to five here on Death of the Reader this week. Our first week with this novel, Herds has challenged me to solve it. And I think the first puzzle we need to solve, Herds, is this title. Flex, it's The Sign of the Four. I am disappointed that you would misrepresent uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's fantastic title. Look, it's... It's like foreshadowing. It's part of the mystery. It's important that we get titles right. Okay. They're deliberate. They're there for a reason. And you're just messing up. You're ruining Mr. Doyle's entire vision by misrepresenting his product. I don't understand why in a genre that is so hounded upon its specifics, there are so many novels that just have alternate titles. (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't know how that's happened. Yeah, like opening night and Night of the Falcon mm. uh, and this, obviously. Like, why? <laughs> obviously, it's a publishing and copyright thing. And I think from on a creative level, I can kind of understand the benefits of having the different titles for different regions and avoiding certain copyright crossovers. But it's just curious that we seem to have run into so many of them in a genre that, as I say, is so detail-oriented. I mean, to be fair, I usually, when I think about, you know, the murder mysteries that we've done... I usually refer to them in, in casual conversation, you know, not professional like this, but in casual conversation by just one or two words, like morgue for money in the morgue, or like, yes, I'd call the sign of the fall, like signs mm-hmm. just, just, just for shorthand, just for ease. Um, but you're right. Even on the kind of commercial side of things, you know, when you're like advertising death on the Nile, it's not death on Nile. It's a death on the Nile. Right. You know, Absolutely. You get it right. And I mean, I can agree with the sign of the four because that is how it's used in the story as it refers to four individuals, Jonathan Small, Muhammad Singh, Abdullah Khan, and Dost Akbar. Who are they? Why do they Who matter? are they, Herds? Who knows? I have a theory, and that's what we're going to get <gasps> Would to. Would you like to tell us about that theory right now on Death of the Reader, award-winning podcast show on 2SCR 107.3? Well, I, I think I shall, Herds. Th- thank you. The, I appreciate that. The question that. I have about mm. this mm. is that we are introduced to them in a small notebook. Yep. It says 3.37 from left. In the left-hand corner, there is a curious hieroglyphic-like four crosses in a line with arms touching. And beside it, written in very rough and coarse characters, is the signatures of Jonathan Small, Muhammad Singh, Abdullah Khan, and Dost Akbar. Now, these characters have had no other weight on the story at this point. All oh. that we have is their names, and clearly by the names of the latter three... Tying it back in the war effort, them to India, much paralleling uh, Dr. Watson's Afghan conflict, because much for the British Empire to be constantly at war. Uh, I'm sure that that ties in with the story. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, maybe this all ties back to India, but uh, we, we, I mean, the only characters we've seen from India was, uh, it was Mr. Mr. Sholto, Mr. Thaddeus, Thaddeus Sholto, if that is his real name. Um, I'm surprised you don't want to tie him closer into the mystery being from that continent or that country where, uh, where there seems to have been some, some wars in the past over in India, you know? Maybe that's where the treasure comes yes. from. Yes. Uh, <laughs> we won't talk about the British <laughs> Empire's tie with look, India because... I don't want listen, to. That's I don't not, want that's to. not the space of this show. However, I think, Herds, I think that it doesn't make much sense. As I said, I think that the uh, the brothers having anything to stand to gain by inviting Sherlock Holmes over there is undermines their involvement in the crime unless we're about to see uh, Thaddeus come up and say, now, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, now that you've seen that I am in the moral high ground, you need to help me cover up my father's misdoings. Look, I'll be honest, I'm a little shocked that you haven't gone a, a different route with your theory here because we have twins in the novel uh, the, the thought that there wouldn't be twin shenanigans is heresy, I would say, in the murder mystery uh, stories. Also, the fact that the only clues that we that we seem to gather from Thaddeus' story are that there was a, a suspicious person with a peg leg and a suspicious ghostly individual with a, a white beard or whatever the heck, like... Those seem like stories out of a comic book when they do a murder mystery. Sure, those aren't they red do. herrings you're falling for. I that seems, like ridiculous to me. Uh, the thing is, herds, is I think that you are overexpecting the mystery in this novel 
because you are used to the whims of the golden age, good sir. You say that like I haven't already finished the novel, but yes, go on. <laughs> like, you as you are solving this mystery, you have no, but yes, please continue. Yes, I, th- I think you are over-expecting this novel to, okay. to, to submit to the Christiasms of the years after its release. I do not think that the mystery in this novel is going to be expansive, extensive, or complicated. I think that Sherlock is going to bust into that room, see the peg-legged man's foot, and go, ah, that's Jonathan Small, because they the said- peg-legged The peg-legged man's foot? I guess, you know, I guess so. Yeah, they're, they're going to they're gonna bust in, and Sherlock's going to say, well, that peg-legged man is clearly Jonathan Small, because they said that his face was white at the window, and thus he must be the only white man in the sign of the four. And we're going to come big, whole, long way around back to the end, and it's going to turn out- that dear Sholto Sr. and Captain Morstan disrespected, disavowed, or otherwise mistreated good Sir Jonathan Small back in the Indian campaign and effectively took this treasure from what I assume was some kind of pact to protect it, that being the sign of the four. I don't know what 3.37 from left has to do with absolutely anything, uh, but otherwise, I think that this is going to be relatively clean cut because this novel is not about trying to solve an extensive puzzle. This novel is about Sherlock Holmes walking into a room and swinging his intellectual penis around. I mean, you know what? I'm not going to deny that that's a lot of what Sherlock Holmes does. He does swing his penis around a lot in the novels. But uh, I have to point out that the the room that we're actually we're actually shown, we're taken to this this lodge. Uh, I believe it is called uh, Pondicherry Lodge mm-hmm. uh, by by Thaddeus to you know see his brother who is a very bad man this Bartholomew so you know we should feel no sympathy yes, for his the, death the, the one laden with avarice that one that one who is definitely the one who is dead uh, and we find that he has a thorn like stuck in in his ear I think and it's like poison so it's like ah oh, he's been struck by a poison thorn and apparently it's like. A laboratory? Do you think there's any kind of connection there? Do you think that there's anything funky going with this room? Like we've been presented with the crime scene, but you haven't really you haven't really said anything about it. You said it's like it's a locked room, obviously. The door was bolted from the inside. Um, there was a, a window that leads out and there's like a coil of rope on the floor. Any ideas of what's going on there? I think that the length of rope is just going to be how we break the locked room. I don't think that that's going to last much longer. I wouldn't be surprised if the next chapter opens with a complete explanation of everything that is in the room. I mean, Thaddeus Sholto has left the room, so Sherlock Holmes is free. There's plenty of room to, you know, swing around. I think that the most likely explanation of the uh, the chemical laboratory is that it's going to end up being some reference to alchemy because he had suffered great avarice at the site of treasure. And that would certainly tie around that, you know, he's trying to turn even more things to gold to keep <laughs> laying up his avarice. But I don't think that it is going to be some incredibly complicated thing, like it's some potion that allows him to speak like his brother so he can more convincingly take his place. So you don't think that maybe, just maybe, look, we got these twins here, which you are still neglecting, I might mm-hmm. point out. And we got this laboratory with all these chemicals. And you yourself say this is before, you know, the golden age, all these established, you know, Knox and Van Dyne rules becoming mainstream, all that good stuff. Um, you don't think there might be some chemical X going on here? You don't think that maybe, maybe the twins have concocted uh, some kind of chemical that might make Bartholomew or even Thaddeus appear deceased so they can play twin shenanigans later? You don't think that's going to be part of the story? I can say if I was going to be wrong about one thing, it will probably end up being that. 
Mm. However, one of the things that we know about Sherlock Holmes, as evidenced by his speeches about cocaine early in the novel, is that he is a chemistry expert. So there is a near guaranteed chance that this man has walked into the room and immediately been able to tell from a slight scent and a glance exactly what is in every vial in the room, thus entirely undermining the purpose of any chemical that would be there. Perhaps... Perhaps we'll have to we'll have to find out on that one. We haven't had we haven't given a Sherlock a chance to get back to his own kind of mm. his own digs and analyze the chemicals and you know run the metal through the boilers and make the fumes happen. Look, I've seen I've seen Basil the Great Mouse Detective. I know how Sherlock does his like chemical <laughs> nonsense. Honestly, that was my first exposure to Sherlock, and I feel like it is the most accurate. Um, <laughs> He's a lot friendlier in that one. Mm. If if anything, I would take a wild guess that we are going to use some scent of chemical or some, you know, splotch of chemical within the next chapters to trace the, the culprit down by, you know, getting a lineup of suspects and seeing who has the bleached green stain from whatever chemicals were on the desk there or whatever. Fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's now Holmes's time uh, in the next kind of chapter and, and so forth. And, you know, the second part of the story to investigate the crime scene and give us some, some real solid clues. So let's, I suppose we'll see uh, moving through if it will help or hinder you. Um, and if you can keep pace with the mind of the greatest detective to have ever lived on Baker street. <laughs> <laughs> we shall see. Anyway, thank you very much for joining us this week on death of the reader. It's been a pleasure having you with us. I'm excited to get further into the sign of the four next week with you heard what chapters are we covering we are covering chapters six to nine you are listening to death of the reader this is 2ser 107.3 we will see you next week with those chapters six to nine of the sign of the four by sir arthur conan doyle sign of the four we are flex and herds and we will see you then <laughs>